behind the lens. Did you miss us last week? It was Labor Day, and Pam and I were not laboring last week. Well, we were laboring, but we weren't labor- laboring here in the studio. Uh, but welcome back to another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers, the TV and film makers. Producers, directors, writers, costume designers, sound editors, sound mixers, um, you name it, composers, authors, um, actors, you name it, we talk to them. Been a busy, busy couple weeks for me. I know I've been doing interviews uh, right and left, and we've had some incredible films that uh, have come out. We're going to talk about some of them today. Um, We've also got some guests I am thrilled to have, fascinated and curious to talk to today. Uh, joining us in just a few minutes should be Tom Putnam, writer, director, editor of The Dark Divide. And I know Tom doesn't re- probably won't remember this, but I'll let all you in on this one. First time I interviewed Tom was 12 years ago for Paris Hilton's movie, The Hottie and the Naughty. Yes. He went from that illustrious film to a spirit, picking up a Spirit Award a few years later. And I talked to him at the Spirit Awards for Marwin Call. And now he's back with The Dark Divide based on uh, the book by Dr. Robert Pyle, where B- Bigfoot walks crossing the Dark Divide. Um, for those of you that really understand uh, the American wilderness, nature preservation, nature conservancy, Uh, You've probably heard of the book. I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, It's a wonderful, wonderful book. And it basically, and the film, uh, The Dark Divide, is premised on Pyle's journey, six-week trek through the Great Divide in Washington's Gifford Pinchot National Forest. Um, The film stars David Cross and Deborah Messing. And if for no other reason to see this film... uh, You want to see the beautiful cinematography and the sound design, which is some of the most beautiful sound I have ever heard in a film. Uh, So I'm very excited we're going to be talking to Tom about that. And then at the midpoint of the show, we're going to have novelist turned screenwriter and actor William Norrit is going to join us along with Arthur Cottom. Uh, director and cinematographer of One Hour Out Call. Uh, it's a nonlinear film. It's a very fascinating character study. As is The Dark Divide, a lot of, of The Dark Divide is a great character study, a very introspective study into Dr. Pyle uh, following the death of his wife when he went on this trek. Uh, One Hour Out Call, it explores um, the relationship between a client and a high-priced call girl. Uh, It's really striking. And 
interesting tidbit I got earlier today. Arthur um, is also tied in with the Dark Divide. His voice or a voiceover is on the film of him. I did not know this until he posted to me on Twitter. Uh, So we're going to have to investigate that today. And chances are we're going to run long today because I do want, if we can, I do want you to hear my exclusive interview with Roger Michelle, uh, the director of the new film Blackbird, starring Susan Sarandon, Sam Neill, Kate Winslet, Mia Wasikowska. It is, it's it's actually a celebration of life set against death. Um, and I love talking with Roger. We last spoke for uh, my cousin Rachel. And something I love about Roger and his filmmaking is that when prior versions have been made, he doesn't look at them. Uh, for my cousin Rachel, there was a 1952, a very famous 1952 film noir, and he didn't see it because he didn't want to be influenced. With Blackbird, we have a similar situation, and it's just an interesting discussion that we that we have because he's very much into metaphor, visual metaphor and design with his films. And Blackbird, I have to tell you, if you're in a city with a theater, sadly not L.A. or New York, um, that is open in 500 theaters around the country, Fathom Events is going to be hosting special screenings tonight and tomorrow of Blackbird before the film goes wider across the country later this week. I can't recommend it highly enough. If you are near a theater with a Fathom event for Blackbird, get your tickets, go see it. You will not be disappointed. The performances are award-worthy. And, of course, another film. If you're watching us on the... AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook live stream page, you're going to see my tablescape today. Um, Today it's all about I Am Woman. Anju Moon has directed I Am Woman, the Helen Reddy story. Uh, And for those of you that are looking, yes, these are all original albums going back to 1971. Uh, Some of them even have Sam Goody price tag stickers on the back of them. Uh, they have, I have, they have been hauled all over the country with me since their original purchase. Um, it's another film. It is exceptional. The music is outstanding. The performances are great. It is, it's a winner. And yes, if you get a chance to see that on the big screen, see it. If you have to settle for digital, it's a compromise, I know. But, uh, so... But let's get started with today's show. And our first guest, who has been on hold for a couple minutes now, welcome to the fabulous Tom Putnam. Hi, Tom. Hi, how are you? Well, I am so excited to be talking to you again. How are you? I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Everything's on fire in the West Coast. Otherwise, uh... Things are going pretty well. Well, this actually makes this film, The Dark Divide, so perfect to be coming out at this time, Tom, um, with all of the fires. Because when you watch this film, you really get an appreciation for our natural wilderness. But also, you so keenly address in here, you have several scenes 
with deforestation happening and an explanation as to why thinning out of forests are so necessary at times. And you present the battle between the the naturalist and conservationist, and it's so beautifully set out. That, and it really hits home right now with all of the fires that we're seeing on the West Coast. Yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing. We spent, it's weird. We spent 10 years trying to get this film made, and here, the week it's coming out, the Gifford Pinchot National Forest, which is where we filmed, and such an important part of my life and a reason I wanted to make this film, has two fires burning in it. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of the issues we talk about in the film are happening right now. Um, so that's really changed sort of how we're discussing the film, right? Because it went from a place that we wanted to share to a place we want people to help protect, which is mm-hmm. not easy to do. And that's something because I had read Robert Pyle's book originally, Where Bigfoot Walks Crossing the Dark Divide. And I was blue. Oh, fantastic. And I, I loved it. Um, and something I should point out to everybody is that there is a partnership going with National Wildlife Federation so that a portion of the proceeds from the film will go to the National Wildlife Federation. And it tickles me. That's one of my, one of my main charities. Uh, oh, awesome. So, yeah, when I found that out about the film, it's like, all right, have to, have to, have to cover this film, have to talk to Tom. Um... Because And I think you've done an amazing job adapting the book to the big screen. An am, oh, An amazing job. And I was briefly at the top of the show. I was mentioning this is Dr. Pyle's story, his journey across the forest um, following the death of his wife. And your casting of David Cross is inspired, to say the least, I never would have envisioned him in this role. <laughs> he is amazing. He is amazing in this film, Tom. I think for, for David and uh, Deborah Messing, I think people are going to see a side of them oh. that is really going to surprise them, right? Oh, uh. absolutely. For both of them. Um, and Deborah isn't in the film. This is predominantly David's film. But Deborah's character of Taya, Robert's wife, is the impetus for this journey, is the impetus for the the film. Um, And so she is, her character, Taya, is very key uh, in in Pyle's story and in moving this film, pushing, pushing the film along. And I have to say, if, if for no other reason, for, people need to watch this for Sean Bagley's cinematography, for your editing, and for your sound design. I, oh. I could sit and listen, just listen to the sounds of nature in this film, Tom. It, it, it is exquisite. Exquisite. Our, uh, our sound designer, Jeremy Grody, uh, he spent weeks putting together all of these sounds of authentic birds from the forest where we filmed. And 
uh, it was really important to him to be so accurate. And I got to say, at the time, I thought, is this overkill? But people really have been responding to the sound design. So that's great to hear. Well, and then you've got your mix that I think Zach Cal did. But your sound mix because you get waterfalls, you get rivers, and you get how the river sounds at different points depending on the rocks and how the water is rushing over it. Um, you've got wind. You have the coyote house. This is truly, it is a soundscape of nature. Uh, you, you, oh, can, you, can, you. you can just put out a soundtrack just of the sound, Tom. And I would buy it. You know what? I may, I may do that. That sounds like a pretty good idea, actually. It's very relaxing to listen to. Uh, oh, I, I sat there and just... And then you throw the images in um, that are absolutely gorgeous. You've got, during part of the trek, and uh, he's going through a field and he stops at the 34-43 mark. And you've got the blue T-shirt, periwinkle color jacket he's wearing. You've got the blue sky. Grass is wafting in the breeze. Um, you've got, you go in on a close-up um, coming in from above from a drone shot. And you've got dancing butterflies flitting across the screen. And then you cut to, the, to a waterfall. And the greenery, the richness of the forest, and the intricacy of little berries... Um, it is beautiful. It's reflective. Uh, it just, I could watch that one scene forever. Oh, thank you. It's, well, he's a guy, Bob, the real Bob Pyle is the world's foremost expert on North American butterflies and moths. So we wanted to show people the huge scope of this place, but also get in close, right? And mm -hmm. see the tiny details that make up the forest that you normally overlook. And so it's great to hear that, uh, that you responded to that. Oh, my God. And, you know, you get, you've got your spotted owl coming in. Spotted owl is a big part of this film. Um, you even have sounds of civilization, a train whistle. Um, you have the horrid sounds of buzz saws um, or people on motorbikes, you know, off-road vehicles in areas they're not supposed to be in, something that right now I think people will really be more receptive to because of the cause of some of the fires that we're looking at uh, here, on right. the, here on the West Coast. But you take us through the entire um, region so that we see snow. We go underground. We've got cave drawings. We're in a lava tunnel. My God, where, where do you start planning this film, Tom? I'm just so excited by everything you have in here, all of the elements. Um, so you, def <laughs> you definitely feel like you spent a month, right, Hike, hiking through this amazing place with him. But it doesn't feel like a month. That's that's fast, huh? that's the beauty of this. So that when we get the camera gets this great shot of David Cross's face when he runs into two guys, and he goes, and they're like, "Yeah, it's Fourth of July." He goes, "What do you mean the Fourth of July? I, I was supposed to be out of here on the twenty second of June." Uh, so. <laughs> yeah, um, it's, even, uh, I felt I felt like that's how I felt making the movie. <laughs> we were. We were there for a long time, and it was awesome and difficult and everything in between. So how do you, how did you approach this? Um, this is not an easy undertaking 
if for no other reason, just the scope of the geography that you're covering? Um, well, I come from a documentary back, background and knew that we were going to be moving quickly and working with a small crew. It was really important to me to try to shoot whenever we could in the real locations where Robert Pyle's true story took place, and those are some pretty rugged, uh, isolated locations. So <laughs> we had a small crew. We moved fast. And um, as a result, we were able to film in a lot of locations. I mean, a film crew isn't supposed to be, right? You saw the mm -hmm. film. There's yeah. <laughs> moments where you're on these narrow trails with, you know, 500-foot drop-offs or, like you talked about, that lava tunnel underground mm -hmm. up in snowstorms above the tree line. Um, we, just, we just moved very quickly. We shot the whole film in 22 days, which was fast. But a lot of that came down to David as well. He was so prepared and so invested in the role that there were a lot of moments where we would say, you know, we've got 10 minutes, the, there's a thunderstorm coming, and he would run out and just nail it. Most of what you see in the film was probably shot in one or two takes. Wow. Well, and, and I think that helps because we really appreciate the wide-eyed wonder um, of David that he brings to, uh, to Robert. Granted, a wildlife expert, he's been out there before, but no matter what you see, there's always something new. It's like today they just announced that there was some kind of life form coming from Venus that indicates there could have been life on Venus. Um, Whoa, I missed that. That's like, oh, why are we talking about this movie? It's what? All, it, it was, I listened to it driving in this morning on KNX. This is a big news story. Um, wow, I totally missed that. But it just, it just shows you that just when you think that that wonder doesn't cease, even for a seasoned veteran, um, somebody like Robert Pyle, and David really captures that and brings it to life. And it's very transformative. As you watch the film, you feel that wonder. You feel that wonder of a new butterfly. You feel that wonder of, okay, all right, when I go in the forest, if I see those berries, I can eat them. All right, good. Uh, well, maybe don't do that. <laughs> but I don't want to be responsible for what happens. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's. I made the film because... This is a place I grew up camping and fishing and hiking every weekend when I was a kid. And I live in Los Angeles now, and I've, as I'm a parent now, I really miss that. And I've realized how important it is for me to have nature in my life, not just you know to go out and get exercise, but emotionally and spiritually. Where else can you go where you can remind yourself of how you connect with the world and your place in the world and your what seem like big problems often seem really small after you go on a hike. Mm -hmm. Especially now, right? Yes. With everything we're all dealing with. You know, how did you, and working with Sean, because such as the, the lava tunnels underground, your footprint, your carbon footprint is so small with this film, but you're using natural light underground. It, it looks like the only light you had was the light on uh, on the on the the headlamp that David was wearing? Uh, I think sometimes it was. So that lava tunnel, 
we hiked way out into the woods. There's this little A-frame cabin that looks like something out of a horror movie, and a guy led us into the cabin <laughs> and opened up a closet door inside the, this old musty cabin, and there's stairs going down like 300 feet into this lava tunnel you could park a 747, and it was like the total Scooby-Doo action. Mm-hmm. So that was, that, that was every day was something like that. Um, Sean Bagley, who shot the film, young guy it's only his second feature wow. and i mean he's going to be shooting <laughs> if he has his way he'll be shooting a, a jurassic park movie five years from now <laughs> he's just so he has that amazing gift of knowing where to put the camera and how to make things look just right it's often when he just had a couple of minutes mm-hmm. to do it i think that's a big that's a big part of why i think the film feels like an experience rather than maybe just a movie mm-hmm well, and then hand in hand with what Sean is shooting is your editing. Um, I'm curious, were you editing as as you were shooting? Did you wait till you had all the footage and then sit down and, and cull through it and start the edit process from there? Because the cohesiveness as you take us through day to night and night to day uh, and, you know, warm sunny skies and fields to freezing mountains with snow-covered mountains and blizzard winds um there's a rhythm here there's a beautiful lyricism that you have so i'm curious with all this gorgeous footage what was your editing process um that's a great question thank you for asking well i when people let me i sometimes make my living as an editor so as a director i'm always looking at my job is just giving the editor what they need to put the film together. And I, I edited the film along with Sam Hook, who I've cut a number of films with. And he started editing while we were shooting. And um, something that was a real blessing for us was that we knew the music we were going to be able to get prior to shooting. So a lot of those scenes you see, those were the songs I was listening to and I was shooting with a certain piece of music in mind, knowing that we would be able to get that. And that, I think, is a, something that doesn't happen very often. And it allowed me to put together these sequences, thinking about the rhythms of those songs and speeding things up or slowing them down. And I think that really helps it uh, all kind of come together. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the film, there's no dialogue, right? There's a whole 35-minute oh, stretch where nobody talks. There's very little so, dialogue. Very little. Yeah. And that's something that that I appreciate with a film like this. And when you do have dialogue, it's very purposeful. Um, we have the exchange with the guys doing the deforestation and the thinning out. We have that exchange. You've got the exchange with um, Ketchner, and <laughs> who's hilarious. Um you know, and they're talking about, you know, the history of the Native Americans who inhabited the land and how they viewed it. Um, you bring a lot of wonderful discussion points in here. And they're educational, they're enlightening, and interesting as can be. Thank you. Well, I mean, it's that's one of the things I loved about Bob's book is it takes your perceptions of these different people and it changes them. Like it's a, the forest is a complex place and there's all sorts of people who call it home in the way that, you know, you can vilify people in the timber industry, but they recreate there too. And they love 
the forest as well, and it's comp it's it's a complicated relationship. Mm-hmm. I hope the film sort of touches on that a little bit. Well, I think it does, and and I think that the scripted structure, the scripted dialogue, really sets that out. When we get the whole explanation um, about the, where the spotted owl comes in. And it's, well, you don't see the spotted owl because there's not this, there's not that. And, well, you know, it's extinct. It's going extinct because of. But, yes, but if we don't thin this out, then there's going to be wildfires. And then it's going to burn everything down. So then not only is the spotted owl not going to have anywhere to live, but neither is X, Y, and Z. And you really... I mean, I haven't seen anything that sets it out this straightforward, which is why I think now, of all times, for people to see that and understand that, um, it makes it, it makes it very understandable for people that aren't aware of how this works, and how and the synergy that we need uh, with nature, with wildlife, with the environment. Um, so, I just I think that's it's fantastic the way you've structured that. Thank you. I love how you just put that. I mean, it's it takes a lot of different points of view to mm-hmm. come up with the solution. And it's not about any one group of people being completely right or any one group being completely wrong. And um, looking in particular at what we're seeing right now with the fires up and down the West Coast, it took us 180 years to create this situation. Yeah, It's complicated. And it's it's not a matter of whatever, raking the forest or yeah, no. more logging or less logging or, you know, changing where people live. It's a combination of all sorts of things. And, is, yeah, and of course, one of the biggest things is arson is unacceptable. Sure. That's Are we having a discussion about whether arson is acceptable? <laughs> no, we're not. That's <laughs> just that... point blank. I'm waiting <laughs> to hear that come out in the news later today after the meetings that are yeah. taking place in Northern California. Um, but, but, you know, you have to look at everything underlying and then what makes everything that happens on top of that. And you you get us back to basics here. You really do. Um, and and I just think it's so impactful and so important. I agree. I mean, I don't know about you, but after spending six, seven months, mostly at home, the thought of being able to get outside and going on, go on a hike with clean air and being in nature, to me, that, there's not a lot I would rather do than that. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. And, of course, right now is not the time to go out and commune with nature uh, unless, no. you, unless you like to get asphyxiated um, with all the ash. Uh, you know, let me ask you about the music because – I am enamored with the music here and the the instrumentation of the music. We get a lot of folksy banjo, guitar strumming. What, what kind of music were you looking for to punctuate this film? Because that's what the music does here. It punctuates and melds with nature. Wow, what a great question. Thank you. Um, I wanted music that felt very analog, very organic, and that in a lot of cases was the voice for what was going on in the main character in Robert Pyle's head. So the music I gravitated to was a mix of, I think, wide-eyed wonder, Mm -hmm. but often with um, a little heartbreak underneath. 
he's going on this journey after some pretty life-changing things have happened, and he has a lot to think about as he's hiking. And I always wanted that present in the music as well. And I think when it's all put together, the music is a really wonderful voice for that goes along with David Cross's performances and his expressions, which just run the gamut from making us laugh to making us cry to terrifying us. And I think the music... Just keeps going right along with him and guiding us through this journey. Um, and I also think sometimes the music represents the forest a little bit. Sometimes when you're watching the film, I think the audience feels we're a part of the forest and we're watching him and we're feeling mm-hmm. bad for him or hoping he connects with us and you know welcoming him in toward the end of the film. Mm-hmm. And the film isn't. It's while it's very introspective and it's also very eye-opening and you know, full of wonder for those of us watching the film. You also have a lot of comedy in here. Um, well, yeah. I, I'd like to know, did we keep track of how many hours David Cross is running around in just his little tidy whities through the forest? You know what? You ca- count yourself lucky. And he, <laughs> he didn't even want those tidy whities for some of those scenes. Um, yeah, there's a couple scenes that got cut, too. Uh yeah, I mean, that was one of the things I loved about Bob's book was there's these moments where yep. he's naked, and it's ridiculous, but it's kind of life-affirming. And I was reading his book and thinking, ah, that sounds kind of great to feel that free. When in life can you do that? Um, and, uh, yeah, we definitely see a lot of David, <laughs> his emotionally and uh, physically. Yes. Well, and I have to say, some of the setups are just spectacular where he hears a noise and he goes traips and he wants to see what it is and he goes off and he's got on his boots and his underwear and he goes off with his little with his little net his wind sock and he's going through the trees and he's going under here and he's going under there and it's hilarious and then of course you have a must in any film of this a quote-unquote does a bear shit in the woods moment um, yeah. which you, know, you have to laugh and you follow that up with a joke um, a little further on. But the humor, it's so, it's so natural. It's inherent to the situation. What just amazes me is he didn't get any poison ivy. Um, I think actually David Cross, the actor, did... <laughs> But, yeah, not Bob in the film. He definitely, there were some unexplained rashes that we were dealing with. Um, I mean, that, you asked me about, you know, casting David earlier. Yeah. That's one of the things that excited me about him. I mean, other than a couple of tiny scenes, the whole movie is him. Yeah. We're just right on his face. And I wanted someone that could make it feel human, but also pull us in and make us laugh when they needed to. So it was amazing to be able to put David in the movie. I mean, how many thousands of stand-up shows has he done and TV yeah. shows and things? He, it was really neat to take him and put him out in this environment because he knows his craft so well and he thinks so fat on, fast on his feet. You know, every day we would run into something that would throw a monkey wrench into the works and David was always right there and within a couple of minutes he or we would figure out a way to come up with something that I ended up feeling was better than what 
we started the day wanting to do. Mm-hmm. What would you say was the most challenging aspect of making the dark divide? Oh, everything. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, first, first, you you try you try raising money for a period piece about a quiet butterfly expert who goes on a hike and recites poetry. Um, that was hard. The production was, I mean, brutal. We we shot in June, May and June of last year, and uh, the snow hadn't melted. So every day when we finished shooting, we would, like, drive around trying to figure out sometimes where we were shooting the very next day because areas would still be snowed in. Um, and then, you know, then trying to release the movie was going to start playing in March, and then COVID happened, and then everything, you know, we're releasing it this week. A um, lot, of, lot of theaters and locations in Oregon and Washington, and last time I checked, mm-hmm. Oregon and Washington are on fire. So it's just every step of the way has been sort of a, like, knife fight to the death on this thing. But wow, it's been worth it. I'm, it's really great to start being able to show it to people. Well, so now I, I know I'm going to have to let you go in a couple minutes because uh, I know we're going to have William and Arthur. Arthur, who apparently has his voice in The Dark Divide. Uh, oh, from, uh, from One Hour Alcohol? Uh, I think so. All I know is Arthur, he tweeted today because he's coming on the show. Yeah, for one hour alcohol. Arthur tweeted this morning. Hey, you know, my voice is in the, the dark divide. I'm like, oh, God, I got to find out about this one today. Um, yeah, we have a lot of shared cast and crew. Uh, same ed- uh, Sam Hook, who edited one hour alcohol, edited dark divide with me. Um, <laughs> T, who directed one hour alcohol and a lot of the cast and crew came and did uh loop group work for us um oh my god yeah we're coming out the same week even yes you are absolutely and in some respects both films are they're they're about complicated relationships be it with yourself be it with nature be it with family uh and other people both really take a look at the complexity uh, an introspection of people. Uh, with, of course, one hour alcohol. I cannot picture anyone in that film in the environment of the Dark Divide. Uh, but <laughs> it's a different kind of jungle that they're in. Yeah, for sure. A different kind their, of. Their jungle is, I feel like, a much scarier jungle in some ways. It's actually much darker, I think. <laughs> yeah. Than the dark divide, but yeah, but no. Arthur and and uh, William are going to be coming on. Uh, they're holding now. They're going to come on after I let you go. But I have to ask you, what did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker, Tom, in making the dark divide? Because this of the challenges, but then also the fr- to see the fruits of your labor and this beautiful film. Oh, that's a great question. Um, I learned to, I think, stick to my guns. And I had a vision for the film, and a lot of roadblocks popped up, and I tried to have faith in that vision all the way through and see it through to the end. And that's not something, as a filmmaker, you always do. Sometimes you give in to those voices or 
or the problems that arise. And I'm really proud of the fact that I and the rest of the cast and crew didn't do that. And we somehow, by some miracle, pushed through and kept shooting every day and were able to finish the film despite some, you know, a lot of weather and just logistics challenges. And um, it just taught me a good lesson in perseverance. Oh, well, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, Tom. You have to come back on again. Um, All right. Thanks for having me. I'll come back on as long as we don't talk about the hottie and the naughty. Yeah, well, it it wasn't fun talking about that at the Spirit Awards. Um, (laughs) So, (laughs) but one thing I do want to say to everybody when they watch The Dark Divide, so many people stop watching the film when the credits come on. Stay through the entire credits because... Once you get through and the and the crawl starts and scrolling through, there is no music and you just hear nature. And it's a spectacular way to end the film. It's just thank you very much. Ah, Tom, a pure joy. And I will talk to you again soon. Okay, sounds good. Thanks, Tom. Bye bye. Bye. Okay. Now, I need you to... Now, our other gentlemen have been patiently online. And they're with us now. William Norton, Arthur Cottom. Are you here, boys? Uh, William is here. Hi, Debbie. Hi, guys. How are you? Good. How are you, Debbie? I am thrilled to have you guys on. Um, I think it's absolutely hilarious. I did not know that Arthur, you were involved (laughs) in the dark divide. And now I found out that Sam cook, uh, Sam hook, uh, the the editor, Tom's editor also did editing on one hour alcohol. So it was destined that I have all of you on the show today. Just destined. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Just a demonstration (laughs) of how small the world is. Well, it, Right. Not only that, but it's a demonstration of how small and how close-knit the independent film community is. Sure. It really is, yeah. It's actually Tom that reminds me of that occasionally. <laughs> so this is <laughs> uh, fortuitous that we happen to be on the same show on the same morning. Wow. Um, yeah, because I, you guys have been booked forever. The minute I, the minute I got the blast <laughs> from Annie, I said, I want them. I want them. Uh, oh, wow. Thank you. And then when she just hit me up last week about the Dark Divide, and I'm like, okay, well, let's jockey mm. something here. Let's get Tom on for the first part of the show, and let's have William and Arthur on for the next part of the show. She's like, okay, okay. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I juggle. I didn't know until I saw your tweet this morning that uh, Tom was going to be on the show. <laughs> Shame on Annie, and she's repping both films. She should have told you. Yes. Uh, but talk to me, William, talk to me about writing One Hour Out Call, because not only do you write it, you star in this. Um, yes. Was it always your intent to have this as a, as a vehicle for you to act in, or was that after the fact? Um, well, it was a little bit of both, actually, because I came up with the idea a while ago. I was living downtown in a loft, and I knew 
you know, I had always wanted to make a micro-budget film or a feature film, and I knew it was going to be a micro-budget, so I wanted to kind of use what was available. Uh, so at the time, I lived in this loft, which was large, and I thought it would be a great location to kind of shoot kind of a confrontational drama. Mm-hmm. And then just for for a variety of reasons, I didn't get my act together and finish the script while I was still living in the loft. Um, <laughs> but once I finished the script and kind of connected with T as far as directing it, it's just, I mean, part of the independent film spirit is to just use what's available. Um, and I'm, I was available. <laughs> so, so I wasn't necessarily writing it for myself or to use it as a vehicle for me, but, um, but I guess it just was advantageous because I knew I could work for cheap, basically. Yeah, funny how that comes into play all the time. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It is a relevant thought. It, uh, somehow that always, you know, comes into play. Um, this is a very, it's a very nonlinear, unique structure. Two one-hour out yes. call. As we jockey, we've got jump cuts back and forth over time. And the biggest way that we can tell that, that time is passing is because of the clothes. But then some of the same outfits appear again, and which further gives us that that nonlinear structure of emotions uh, were happening and you can gauge it. it it's kind of an indicator the outfits are kind of an indicator as to where things are cut and where we're jumping and the emotional state of um, Esmeralda or Anna however she wants to be called and your character of Greg did you write it this way, or did this get broken up, chopped up when it was decided you were going to make a film out of this, guys? Um, well, I'll, I'll let T. I'll let T speak to the costumes and the shooting aspect of it. Uh, but the but the script was always nonlinear, and I had always written it episodically. And what I did was is I actually wrote all of the seven episodes in their entirety, and then to come up with basically the draft of the screenplay, I. I kind of pastiched those episodes together to kind of create the nonlinear aspect. But T really, T really worked to make it uh, make those episodes distinct once we started shooting. So I'll let him speak to that. Yeah how do how do you yeah. even approach something that is this nonlinear? Well, it was actually that was part of what excited me about the project when Bill originally told me about it. Um, so. For me, it was an exciting challenge. So yes, it was always meant to be nonlinear. And I right away started envisioning, okay, how can I pull this together visually so that the audience isn't lost? Because with a lot of nonlinear films, it's difficult to orient yourself. And, you know, I, I want the audience to enjoy the experience too and not feel lost or... Um, uh, to still be able to follow the story. So for me, I had conceived this opening, which became the door sequence in the beginning, which I had immediately had in mind from the first day that Bill had told me about the project. So to me, that was exciting to be able to pull it together visually with the door sequence, and then, as you mentioned, the costume, um, which Rebecca Michaels did a fantastic job with. Yes. yes. And just so that when we're cutting back and forth, the audience can see, okay, they're wearing the same thing that they wore in this part. So Mm -hmm. 
it's not crucial for them to be following each episode all the time. Right. uh, As long as they can uh, stay in the game, so to speak. And I think that Sam did, Sam Hook, the editor, did an incredible job with that, too. Sure. Of just putting together the visual elements that I had shot in a way that the audience can still follow it, even though it's complex and nonlinear. I had no problem following it. Um, I, I love the entree of using the door opening. Um, because yeah, at, fir- at first you're thinking it's a Groundhog Day kind of sensibility. Okay. It's happening again. It's mm-hmm. happening again. It's happening again. But you're seeing the different clothes. You're seeing different attitudes. Uh, and that's something that I really find very striking, um, are the different attitudes that we are met with in each encounter between Greg and Esmeralda. Um, Good. That's great. Yeah. The attitudes and the body language that goes with them. Um, sitting on a couch, on a, on, on a love seat, because it's not a full couch, it's, it's a love seat. Sitting on a love seat, but the distance between the two. Mm-hmm. And the timber and cadence of voices and what's not being said. Um, all those little things really come forth and you really pay attention to them because of the structure that you have. Yeah, oh, that's, you. I mean, that we knew that it was a challenging um, kind of device to execute, but, but T in his, in his direction and certainly Sam and his editing really executed it. The idea that I had, they really just took it and ran with it and really accomplished something. It really rose beyond my expectations, frankly. Well, and I have to say, T, something that you did that I fell in love with is what you do with mirrors. Um, 30-minute mark, you've got mirror scenes going back and forth with, with Esmeralda and her friend Shannon, and you keep switching the positions. So one is looking in the mirror, then they switch, the other one's looking in the mirror, and they go back and forth. 44-minute mark, um, you're in the bathroom at Greg's uh, loft or, or apartment, and he's in the mirror preening after washing his hands, and Esmeralda comes in, and a perfect framing of her in the vanity top little round mirror. Um, you're giving us this great sense of duality continually happening in here uh that i really this elevates this with metaphor and the visuals uh you know how was that always part of your design how difficult was that especially perfectly framing you know natalie ochoa and as esmeralda perfectly framing her in the little round table vanity top mirror because that's a very small mirror i know how big those are my mother had one and then you know of course william you get to be you know a full-sized wall mirror um but that's tricky from from a, a lensing standpoint so i'm curious as to um, how you went about some of these more intricate shots, because they are intricate. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I think that that actually speaks to um, the difficulty of an actor's job. Um, I think that there are a lot of things that people may or may not realize that are challenging for actors, and you have to hit a very specific mark. 
in order to show up in a tiny mirror like that. Um, And also in the scene that you're referring to in the bathroom where Natalia and Shannon are having a conversation uh, and we see their entire conversation through a mirror. Mm -hmm. um, The challenge for them there was that they weren't actually looking at each other. So what the camera sees and what they're seeing are two different things. So if they were looking at each other and talking to each other, it would look odd in on camera because of the way that the mirror is positioned and the camera in relation to the mirror. So they're picking spots on the wall and I'm sort of guiding them that, you know, they're saying, does this look like I'm talking to her? Does this look like I'm talking to her? No, a little bit more to your right, left. So they're having a conversation together. That's a, a pretty involved conversation and a lot of uh, intricacies in that conversation while also not being able to look each other in the eye. So to me, that kind of speaks to their talent. Um, and as far as the bathroom and the where Bill is in one mirror, the bigger mirror, and Natalia shows up in the smaller mirror, uh, it was funny because, you know, you have to adjust the mirrors to get a certain reflection. Mm-hmm. And that mirror in the bathroom that Bill is standing next to if you look very closely it's pulled away from the wall quite a bit yeah and I remember Bill saying I remember Bill saying you know standing in front of the mirror and washing his hands and sort of cheating his body open to the camera and the mirror is actually really close to him he's like are you sure this doesn't look weird (laughs) (laughs) but you know you see it on camera I know what I'm looking through when I look through the lens and it looks fine to me but you know in real life it's just sort of absurd you know this mirror pulled out from the wall that looks kind of absurd in real life or from bill's perspective but you know the but visually on camera it's movie magic is real movie movie magic is movie magic (laughs) but of course i think i think the record must reflect that the the females had the more challenging uh mirror camera work than you did bill I think that's... Oh, well, no. All all I had to do was walk in front of a mirror and just, just try not to think of how heavy I looked. That's all I had to do. My challenge was <laughs> much, much uh, easier than everyone else's. I just had to just not be insecure. Yes. Well, you looked perfectly fine on camera to me. And I have to say, you know, you can you should try shopping that segment of the film to, you know, the Ad Council and the CDC because you give us a nice representation of how to wash your hands. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, look, uh, you know, I'm not going to say that I was classically trained in washing my hands, but I've spent, you know, I've spent a fair amount of years really honing my, uh, honing my method. Yeah. Yes. Well, and I, I'm looking at that, and of course, in any other time, wouldn't have paid attention. But with the way we've right. been flooded about how you wash your hands, and like you, I have spent my whole life watching, washing my hands. Um, right. yeah. I didn't think I needed <laughs> lessons in it, but you do well, it. He, he, he was ahead of his time, too, <laughs> because we shot that scene four years ago. So, Oh, right. my God. Right. I, I, just knew, I just knew my attention to, uh, attention to detail washing my hands would pay off sometimes. Oh, my God. So you shot this four years ago, guys? Yes. Yeah, yeah. micro uh, film. Uh, no, you know, November, takes, November takes while, December so. 2016. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. And number one, you're still talking to each other. Um, 
<laughs> that that in and of itself, that's a shocker. Uh, but you know, you you've hung in there, and this film is now coming out. So I'm curious: was did it take a lot of time with the editing process? Did it take a lot of time finding a distributor or figuring out where to go? Why the four-year gap? Was it sitting on a shelf collecting I, dust? Um, no. You know, I know that it, uh, it sounds like a long time. Um, but in reality, it is kind of the normal life of, uh, of an independent mm-hmm. film, especially a micro-budget. Um, so it takes about a year and a half to, to, from start of production to finished film um, under normal circumstances. And then with the micro budget, you know, there's, there are periods of time where you have to raise the money, but mm-hmm. I don't really think that that was uh, a hindrance in this case. Um, no, it was, ne- there was never, there was never a period where it, where it slowed down or died. It was always moving forward. So, mm-hmm. I mean, right. I mean, sometimes the progress was moving slower than other times. And I would always like things to move faster, but I don't think it was ever, it was ever, the momentum never stopped. So, yeah, that, that part I'm actually quite proud of. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was uh, sort of a conscious decision to do the festival circuit for at least a year. Yes. Okay. And a lot of films, they have a, you know, in my experience, they have a festival life of about a year and a half to mm-hmm. two years. Yeah. Um, and then the film was discovered at the Valley Film Festival, and that's when it got picked up for distribution. And then... Um, you know, there's a process that you go through before the film gets released, which is about a six month six month process. Mm-hmm. Well, so it's a, it is kind of a normal life for a for a micro budget film. Yeah, it's funny because I've a few directors, indie indie directors, I've talked to the, over the past few months. There, it's like, no, now they don't want to go a festival circuit; they just want to get a distribution deal right away, and it's like. Mm-hmm. Um, you're gonna have to get it out there somehow. Uh, right. The festival right. circuit is—it's a very important component in the indie film world, and sure. yeah. this Valley mm-hmm. Film Festival is a great festival. And yeah. this, I think, Gravitas. Had I seen this film at Valley Film Festival, I would have said to you guys then: you need to talk to Gravitas. This is right in their wheelhouse. Oh, really? Great. Um, So I'm not surprised that they picked this up. Uh, Yeah. And I think you're... We're we're very pleased. Yeah, you're in in really good hands with Gravitas picking this one up. Um, But it's exactly where I would have said to you, hey, have you guys talked to Gravitas yet about this one? Um, Oh, really? Wow. So I'm curious... Well, it's, it's been a great fit for us, so... Well, something yep. that, that was a great fit for me is watching this, and I see the Italian restaurant, and I go, oh, my God, it's Maselli's. And <laughs> lo and behold, I even wrote, yeah. and I even wrote a note to myself in my notes, um, L.A. Shoot, restaurant, Maselli's. And lo and behold, <laughs> there in the end credits. I, yep. I, know, I know my favorites. I know my favorites. Yeah. Um, it is, yeah, it's, that's a nice uh, little surprise for everyone who lives in Los Angeles when they see that. Yeah. But you're 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 um, you're bursting the fantasy bubble because it's supposed to be set in uh, Northern California, 
So Micellis uh, can expand. Yeah, fair enough. They have more than one location. <laughs> right. right. Please. It will prompt them to open a location in Northern California. Look, I just I just yep. want them to be able to open locations so I can go sit in there and eat again instead of having to get something at the curb and take it home. Yeah. That would be nice. Uh, yeah. that's <laughs> someday. Someday. I'm not I'm not asking for much out there, folks. I just want to be able to go, <laughs> you know, go into Musso and Frank's, go into Maselli's, even go to into Denny's to have coffee. <laughs> sure. <laughs> not asking Absolutely. for much here. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think we show off that Michelli's has a really great atmosphere, too. So it's definitely one of those places where you want to go in and sit down. Oh, you absolutely and enjoy the do. Decor. You absolutely yeah. do. The, the camera angles that you have to show the kitchen behind and you've got the, the dark woods and you've got the red and white checkered tablecloths. But it's so inviting. And then, of course, you pick up the beautiful stained glass on the doors. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. they should be very, very, very happy and giving you free food the rest of your lives. For how <laughs> from, from, from your lips to God's ears, I hope so. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, I I could I could you know I'm happy with their chicken parm. I could have that, you know, for a long time oh, to come. That, that was my go-to. Ah, uh, see, great minds think alike. Delicious. Great, yep. great minds think alike here. What can I say? Uh, <laughs> we know the places. We know the good places to go. Uh, oh yeah. You know how difficult was it for you guys to cast outside of of Bill? How difficult was it um, finding Natalie to play Esmeralda? Finding Shannon, um, especially finding Natalia to to play Esmeralda, mm-hmm. because there's a whole chemistry issue there. You've got to get the right chemistry because even a high-priced, you know, call girl, you're not going to keep coming back for months on end without some kind of chemistry with your client. Right, uh, right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm curious about about the casting. Well, Natalia is fantastic. And she, yep. just as a person, as a friend, um, she's... Just terrific to work with, um, very positive, just a, a great overall person. Um, so it was really a pleasure to work with her, and that it was difficult casting that role. Um, we had a couple of prospects that uh, that we were happy with, mm-hmm. um, that we knew were viable possibilities to play the role of Esmeralda, mm-hmm. um, but. I had never felt that spark. You know, I, there was nobody that had auditioned for us. I, I thought, well, this is somebody I can work with. This is workable. Um, this person will do a fine job. Um, and we hadn't, I hadn't really reached the point, that aha moment, like, oh, wow, that is Esmeralda mm-hmm. during the casting. Um, and Kristen Carey, who plays Stacy, Greg's ex-wife in the movie, she well, Bill, you can probably speak to this because you you she reached out to you or you reached out to her. Well, well, we had uh, we had an actor drop out uh, of a smaller role, um, and I was just kind of commiserating with Kristen about that. And Kristen was kind of reassuring me because I was getting a little neurotic 
And then Kristen asked if we had cast Esmeralda yet, and I said no. And Kristen said she knew a friend, uh, Natalia, and could she let Natalia know? And I was like, of course. And then Natalia texted, and that was on a Friday. And we set up the audition for Monday. And we, again, as T said, we had another actor who we both liked, um, but I can, I can kind of agree with T in the sense of she would have been fine, but there wasn't that spark. So that actor came in to kind of do a callback, and then Natalia came in to audition, and the, the, the story that I tell is after Natalia left, I looked at T, and I said, I guess we have a problem, and T looked at me and he goes, I don't think we have a problem at all. I think the problem's just been solved. <laughs> so um, and he was right. So, I mean, we, we were extremely lucky uh, that Kristen knew Natalia and pointed her in our direction, and, I mean, she gives a great performance, and she, as T said, she was a delight to work with, and, yeah, I, we're, I, I consider us very lucky for that. You know, I've I've got to ask. For me, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, for me, as soon as she auditioned, it was a no-brainer. I said, "This is Esmeralda." Mm. Right. You know, yeah. I'm I'm curious about your scoring. Um, while it doesn't leap out at you, which is a good thing, you've got some subtlety of scoring here, and I'm curious about your what you were looking for with with music in this film. Well, I can, I mean, I, he can speak to what, oh, what ahead, we no. were looking for. All, all I'll say is that, again, Natalia knew the composer, Kevin Smithers, and she pointed us in his direction. We were extremely lucky to get him. But as far as what he was looking for, I'll let him speak to that. Yeah, honestly, uh, music is always a big part of filmmaking for me. Mm-hmm. I'm inspired by music quite a bit. And this was one of those instances where I really had no idea going in what I wanted for the music. And I just, at every point, I just thought, okay, well, maybe it'll become clear to me once we start shooting. Nope, it's not clear to me yet. Maybe it'll be clear to me once we start editing. Um, And once Sam put together the first cut, I started to get an idea of, you know what, I think I, I think something jazzy or something um, that's, has a lot of sort of jazz percussion and it would work well. Mm-hmm. And then as Bill said, Natalia introduced us to Kevin, the composer. And we went through the film with Kevin and Kevin, I felt, uh, to be honest, I think I was going in the wrong direction. <laughs> and Kevin started introducing me to other things and the more Kevin introduced to me, the more I was like, oh, yeah, this is where it needs to feel sort of it needs to have sort of a thriller vibe. It needs to not not Michael Jackson's thriller, but a thriller as the genre <laughs> um, to kind of propel it forward. We need to feel like there's something that's almost like a, a sense of impending doom. And mm-hmm. at the same time, it has to have sort of that sexy feel to it. And I think Kevin just knocked it out of the park. So he took nailed it. Me having no idea to me having uh, not a great idea to him having really having uh, great ideas and, and executing them well. Well, I, I think it's fabulous. And I love that you, you knew you needed something with kind of a thriller um, heightened anticipation aspect because everything, the way you have cut this film, the way Sam has cut the film, we are 
it's building. You can feel the tension building that there is something, something big is coming. Um, there's a big reveal. There's a big something. I'm initially thinking, oh, my God, it's going to turn out she's she's Bill's long lost daughter or something. Uh, <laughs> your mind reels. What can I say? The mind reels. <laughs> Um, no spoilers. No spoilers. That's, that's very good. Yeah. But that's it's a testament to your performances and your the direction and the editing to create that sense of foreboding and doom, as you said. Um, just all around, just so well done, guys. Um, I've got to okay, ask. I've got to ask you. What is the magic of this collaboration of the two of you? And will we see more? projects from the from the both of you uh t you want to go first as uh sure sure um so the magic it sounds so um mystical our connection um it actually seriously though um (laughs) bill is a man of his word and uh, i have a lot of respect for him and when he says he's going to do something he does it and it doesn't mean that there weren't bumps along the road, but honestly, very, very few bumps in the road. Um, I think, so I would say mutual respect um, and open collaboration. Uh, Bill was very collaborative. I like to be very collaborative. And so there was that aspect of it. Um, We don't have plans to work on anything specific together at the moment. Um, I have other projects that I'm working on, and I know that Bill has uh, projects that he's working on, but I would, I would jump at the chance to work with Bill again. Well, what I would, what I would add to that, and thank you, Pete, I appreciate that a lot, but what I, would, what I would add is I wrote this, and what I wanted to do is I've always dreamed about making a movie, but I recognized that me directing a script that I had written as my first film, it would have been way too much for me to do. Mm-hmm. And T and I had been friends for a long time, and we would kind of, we've seen each other's work, but we had never worked directly together. And I actually wanted to challenge myself to trust somebody with this script. And I didn't think, I don't think there was a better person out there than T to do it. And I will also say that. I think that I'm maybe just a little bit too cerebral in my own head. Um, and I think that I think that T really kind of was able to tap into me just kind of being more visual and he's much more visually inclined than I am. So it was a perfect match of taking perhaps my witty banter of a script and his great visual mind and just blending those two things together. He definitely pushed me um, in directions that I wouldn't have normally gone towards if it was just me. So I really just, I think it worked in terms of him kind of pushing me to kind of take chances that I wouldn't normally take. So I'm very appreciative of that. Well, I'm so glad the two of you made this film, One Hour Out Call. Everybody can see it starting tomorrow. VOD and digital and Blu-ray and DVD. So... Yep. You've got the full package, and there's no excuse for people not to see it come tomorrow. No, so, no right. excuses whatsoever. No excuses all. Guys, I can't <laughs> thank you enough. This has been so fun having you on the show. I hope you'll both come back on again. 
Oh, oh absolutely. Debbie. Thank, yeah. you. thank you so much. Oh, thank you, guys. And go have a wonderful rest of your day and great opening day tomorrow. Okay, thank, thank you, you very Debbie. much. You too. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Right, bye. bye. And that was T. Arthur Cottom and William Norritt talking about one hour out call available tomorrow. Well, we're going to go ahead and we're going to do it, Pam. Um, we're going to talk about Blackbird. Um, Roger Michelle directed. Uh, it is written by Christopher Torp. It is based on, it's a remake of a Danish film, Silent Heart from 2014. Uh, and, which Christopher also wrote, as a matter of fact. But as I mentioned at the top of the show, as Roger did with his film My Cousin Rachel, that was a new adaptation of Du Maurier's book. Um, it had already been made into a film in 1952. Roger did not see it. Same thing here. He did not see it. This is one of the things I love about Roger Michelle as a director. And for those of you who might be more, you might be more familiar with some of his earlier work, this little film called Notting Hill, um, also Venus, uh, Hyde Park on the Hudson, Morning Glory, documentary Tea with the Dames. Um, but I love this about him. He doesn't want to be influenced by somebody else's interpretation. And he does, and here with Blackbird, he just really, the film soars. Um, Susan Sarandon plays, the, the matriarch plays Lily. She is dying. Sam Neill plays her husband. This is the second time that uh, Susan and Sam have played husband and wife on screen. So there's an automatic ease between them and uh, affability, amiability. Um, Kate Winslet, Mia Wasikowska. Uh, play their their daughters. Rain Wilson uh, is Kate Winslet's husband. Anson Boone plays uh, their son, Jonathan. Lindsay Duncan uh, is the BFF of Susan Sarandon's Lily. And Lily has decided she's going to self-euthanize. Um, this is, she doesn't want her body, she has a disease, it's debilitating. She's going to very quickly stop being able to move, require a feeding tube, not be able to talk, function, think. She doesn't want that. So she calls her family for a final weekend together. Um, it's a fascinating look inside a family. Truths are revealed. It's an examination of the human condition. Um, what really defines a family's love and it plays out very much as um, reverse deathbed confessions with the family confessing to their mother certain things. Um, the film is, it was shot completely in the UK, although it is, takes place uh, on the eastern seaboard in the U.S. Mike Ely is the cinematographer. Uh, you just heard... Uh, James Darcy and I talking about him. He was the DP on Made in Italy, which also, ironically, had Lindsay Duncan in it. Uh, Peter Gregson does the score of Blackbird. It is exquisite. The whole film is it, its beautiful to look at. It taps into the heart. It's very emotional. Uh, and 
one of the things that Roger does so well is he finds a balance between a film that could have gone into the melodramatic, hammed-up cheese factor with grace and elegance and dignity. So take a listen. I got to speak with Roger the other day in this exclusive interview and hear what we had to, he had to say about the making of Blackbird. Hello, Roger. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Well, it is lovely to be chatting with you again. Uh, we last talked about my cousin Rachel. Oh, oh, that's nice. Which you just, I was so in love with what you did with the adaptation of the book. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, as as opposed to looking at the 1952 film. Yeah. Um, so now with this one with Blackbird, I haven't seen Silent Heart. So I went. Nor, nor have I, Debbie. Oh, good, good. Yeah. <laughs> I. I thought it was, was better not to. Not to watch it. It seemed to be. It might contam. I hear it's a really good film, so I didn't really want to contaminate my. <laughs> my view, if you see what I mean. I didn't yes. want to be influenced by it. Well, and that's something I'd so appreciate with you. I loved it with my cousin Rachel. I love it here because you give us your entirely fresh perspective. Yeah. And obviously I read the script. I read a, I read the the first script I read was an uh, English translation of the um, Danish original. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to tell you, I love this film, Roger. This, while... This is a film about death. This is more a film about life and the human condition and and truths revealed. And it plays out much like a reversal of deathbed confessions. So instead of the person on their deathbed confessing about things they missed in life or, or things they regret, now it's the rest of the family. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. I haven't thought of that. Yeah. And I love it. And then you pair that with Mike's gorgeous cinematography and the metaphor that you have going with John's design of the house and all the windows and everything house. It's glass. Not only is it fragile, but you can see everything because Lily is so open about everything. Yeah. This yeah, is just yeah. so stunning on so many levels, Roger. I can't oh, tell you. I, good. It's so moving. Do you think people will go and see it? Do you think it'll have a... It's hard, isn't it? Because it's, it's, it's hard for people to go, go to the cinemas and... Yeah, we still can't go to the cinema here in Los yeah. Angeles. Um, yeah. But this is a film I personally want to see on the big screen because of the beauty, the life-affirming beauty of the film. There is nothing dark. You don't dwell on this as a film about death. You, This is a film about life. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's meant to be a film about celebrating life, seizing life. Yes. And, capitalizing on life. And that's, um, I'm curious here, working with Mike, because I, I love Mike anyway, uh, his work, and what he just did with James Darcy for Made in Italy, using natural light on that longitudinal latitude lo- line in Europe is gorgeous. 
and I see that again here. And well, so, tell me about that film. I haven't seen that film yet. Is it good? Oh, Made in Italy, it is fabulous. And the fact that you have Liam and his son Michael yeah. playing a father and son trying to get over the death of the wife and mother... It's almost like you're watching their real a real life catharsis play out on screen. Oh gosh, that sounds amazing. Um, and like you know, like we have here with Lindsay Duncan, Lindsay Duncan is also in Made in Italy. Oh, I didn't know that. Is she? Yeah. yeah. So, but talk to me about working with Mike and developing this visual tonal bandwidth that the two of you have here. Because the light is so striking, and the way you use all that glass in the house—it well, was a huge challenge for Mike. I mean, he when, the, when I first showed him the location, he just went pale. You know, he just, <laughs> just he went pale and he went very quiet. And it's because we wanted to shoot it in that house. We didn't want to tent the house. We wanted to constantly um, see you out the windows and see the amazing views and of course that's really hard to do when um, the sun you know the sun keeps moving around the house mm -hmm. um, so a lot of the challenge for Mike was actually negative was actually getting um, negative up to take the sun out of room mm -hmm. um, we wanted to use as much available light as possible Nearly all the light we used was was stuff that was sourced from outside those windows. Very little light actually on the on the floor of the set, which was great for me. Mm -hmm. And the sparks laid cable all around the the outside of the house before we started shooting, so that that was really quick to do and really. So everything's about speed on my films. Mm -hmm. I, I want to shoot really quickly and, and and efficiently and economically and then it was a matter of um, you know finding the right NDs and uh, finding the right balance so that you could see outside the windows um, we were shooting it at the end of the autumn I guess mm -hmm. um, and I didn't want to really move the camera I, didn't, I don't think the camera moves at all, it moves once, I think, in the first hour of the film. So that was a, like a like a, a big choice for me to try and make it very compositional. Not you know, none of it's handheld. It's all very it's all on legs. It's all static camera, with with a few exceptions. I mean the the big dinner party scene, the Christmas dinner, is all handheld, and I wanted that to have completely different feel because mm -hmm. I wanted it to feel as informal and fun and improvised as, as the scene itself um, and then at the end of the film the camera starts to move a little bit mm -hmm. well something that, that you and Mike do that I, I just so appreciate is we start out the film and long we get you know a very long view of the house. You take advantage of the layout of the house, the long kitchen counters, the living room, the design, the floor to ceiling aspect of it. And then the pacing also, depending on your holding shots as the quote unquote, the countdown hastens, the camera starts to move in a little bit closer. So by the time we get to the 58 minute mark of the film, 
you, we've got close-ups, we've got ECUs happening, and yeah. we yeah. are just right there in the moment. We are feeling the emotion that each one of the family members is not coming to grips with. Um, it, it is spectacular the way this is designed from that con constructive viewpoint, Roger. Well, I'm, I'm impressed by your analysis. I'm, you're obviously a, a proper a proper student of film because you're absolutely right. That was our intention. But obviously, for most people, that's a subliminal has a subliminal effect on them. But you're conscious because you're very knowledgeable about film. You're conscious of how these things are put together. So, bravo. And it just looks so beautiful. It's emotionally so powerful because we're also getting to those moments right just before the, all those ECUs, we've got Lily taking off her jewelry. And that's a sure sign. Every woman, when you take off jewelry that you never remove and now you're doing it, yeah. that's the end. Yeah. Um, you're saying goodbye. But then you also have some beautiful imagery. Like Cleopatra. Cleopatra does that. Yes. Act five of Anthony and Cleopatra. I, I have my bracelets that I never take off. I have three rings I never take off. And yeah. if and I've had people joke with me, and my attorney has joked. He goes, the day I see you taking that stuff off, you're gone. You're checking yeah. out. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, that's right. The killer, the killer moment for me is when she takes her ring off. Ah. Uh. Uh, hands it down the table, and Sam just takes the ring, and and he thinks he's going to be fine, and he just goes. That breakdown is one of the finest moments of Sam Neill on film, Roger. It really is wonderful, isn't it? It, it is extraordinary, priceless. Yeah. But then you also you've got beautiful. Mike did a beautiful job um, before the dinner as they're getting ready for the dinner, and Lily's standing outside, and the sunset is behind her. And yeah. the sky's getting purple, but we see her reflection and the sunset reflection over the water in yeah. that living room, in that glass door. And yeah. that is so stunning. It's yeah. very ethereal in that moment. It almost feels like she's already transcended into yeah. the next plane. Yeah. Just she's, she's looking up into the sky and she sees birds and she sees very high up she's an aeroplane with a contrail mm -hmm. it's, it's a wonderful moment but and the, and the sound of the birds in the estuary haunting I think yeah the sound design here I have to say Roger really took me by surprise the sound is very subtle your score Peter's score it is very yeah. soft it the score is almost subliminal and we never. Yeah, I, I think he's so talented, Peter. Oh. Yeah, such a great match. But his his style and his but a lot of the early stuff is like his arrangements of Bach. Mm -hmm. but then, but then the later stuff is his own compositions. Mm -hmm. I think it's a marvelous score. I think it's one of the best scores of any of my films. I think it is unbelievably. It is emotional so and yet not not over not overdone, not over sentimental. Fantastic. How important was that to you? Because as you well know, score can get so over-emotional, so over-the-top, that it can turn dramatic moments or quiet moments like this film into, let's face it, something cheesy. 
yeah. And yeah. You, you totally stay away from that. So I'm curious what you were looking for sonically with the score and also with the sound design, which there again, it's delicate and we get the ambient sounds of what's happening within the house or when they're out yeah. walking on the beach, we hear the wind, we hear the surf. You don't clutter your soundscape. I mean, often sound, often good effects are better than music. You know, often the sound of a, the right bird or the wind in the trees or a branch tapping on a window is stronger than any music can be. Mm -hmm. But then sometimes you do need music and sometimes you just don't want the music to, do, to be too illustrative or too... You don't want the music to tell you what you can see. You want the music to add to something that you can see, I guess. Mm -hmm. To add a, either contrapuntally or to add a different, um, maybe a, just throw a different beam of light on what you're probably feeling. I don't know, it's hard to talk about music. It's very hard to talk to composers about music because it's so subjective. But mm -hmm. when it comes down to it, it's try and try again until the thing seems to fit perfectly. And that's what we did with Peter. Well, you certainly achieved that here. Yeah. You know, how difficult was it finding this house? Because this house is a character in the film, Roger. There's no getting around it. It yeah. is very much a character in this film. How difficult was it to find this house? It's stunning. I want to live in that house. Uh, well, you, know, you know I made the film in England. Yes, I know. So finding an American house in England <laughs> is, is, is like quadruply difficult. I mean, this, this house eventually I came upon because it's very close to where Kate lives. Mm -hmm. She kept saying, you've got to see this house, you've got to see this house. And I kept thinking, oh, Kate, the only reason you want me to look at this house is because, you know, it's going to be so convenient for you to shoot that. Um, but eventually I did go and have a look at it, and I was bowled over because it, it's, in fact, designed by an American architect. It's made out of steel and, and wood and glass, mm -hmm. which is very unlike most British houses. And it and it looks, in, in every respect, like a, like a kind of architect's house on Long Island perhaps or Connecticut or somewhere on the East Coast which is where the, where the story's set so it, it, was, it was pretty perfect and we, and we just took over the house for the whole period and we were there every day obviously Well the, the entire location because I'm from the East Coast in the United States and I know the shore the Jersey Shore very well and yeah. even down to the uh, the, the the foliage, the the grass, the seagrass growing that we see on screen. It looks very East Coast United States. Good. Oh, that's good. That's good. So that's and all. The, and, the, and the beach looks right as well, doesn't it? When they go out. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. If I did not know that you shot this in the UK, I would have thought you shot it somewhere on that northeastern seaboard. Of the yeah. U.S. Good. That's good. You know, how difficult was the casting of this film? Because you have, each character in the film has such a dynamic personality that pops out in certain moments. Um, and you needed them to blend as a family, but also to have that friction as a family. Well, all films are 
hard to cast, but you start, you know, you start at the top, you make lists, you start at the top of your list. And I was just, I just was very lucky on this film that so many of the very top people on my list said they, they would want us to do the, the movie. I mean, I was rather surprised by how many A-listers signed up to do this film, but they, they all did. They were attracted by, I think they were attracted by the script, but also by the idea of us all working together in this very intimate way for, uh, in one location, shooting in story order, being all very involved in, very connected to the whole film. I think actors are used to coming in and doing a few days here and a few days there. <clears throat> On this one, everyone was in everything, and there's something special about that. I think people responded to that. I mean, because the cast is just such a perfect ensemble. Uh, it's an ensemble film, isn't it? It's one of those yes. films where they so complement each other and so feed off each other that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Mm -hmm. And seeing uh, seeing Sam and Susan team up as husband and wife again in a film, yeah, yeah, um, it just tickles you because that subconsciously is already built in. You you believe it from the start. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, just right. so beautifully done. You know, now that the film is finally getting out there, uh, and I love that they're going to do that two-night special thing with Fathom, I think. Yeah, that sounds good, doesn't it? Have oh. you seen that before? The, I, love the, that before? I love these Fathom events. They really are nice. Um, I, I actually have attended some of the Fathom events that they have when they paired up with TCM. Right. For big screen for screenings of major classic films, and yeah. I think it's spectacular because it really it gives a, a feel of makes it special when a film when it when you team up with Fathom for a, a two night event like this will have. Good. Well, I really hope that people take advantage of it and go and see it in the cinema. Ah. Uh. Like you say, that would be that would be the best way to see the film. Well, I'm hoping that once Los Angeles finally opens theaters again, that the film will come back onto the, the theatrical circuit, so that those of us who are deprived get a chance to see it on the big screen. Yeah, well, that would be good. That would be very good. <laughs> you know, before I let you go, Roger, I've got to ask you. You know, this film you shot it relatively in chronological order. Um, you've got this great ensemble. What for you as a director did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker that you will now take forward into future films? Oh, uh, every film you make you learn you learn a huge amount because every film is different and every film has different rules and different strategies and challenges and and yet, every time you start a new film, it feels like you're, you know, you're starting the first film you've ever made in your life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I don't, I, I think, I think you, you learn from experience, but you don't really know. Todd, you don't really know what you're learning. You just, the next time around, you think, oh yeah, I remember, I can, I can do that because I did that in that other film. Um, but you have to you have to approach each one like a completely new creation. Otherwise, there's no fun in doing it. Mm -hmm. 
Poor Blackbird, is there any chance you would ever consider taking this to the stage? No. No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be interested in doing that. I don't think it is a theatre piece at all. I think it's a film piece. Um, and I, I, there are other things I want to do on stage when, <laughs> when that ever will become possible again, but, but not that bit. And do we have a release date for the Duke yet? I'm looking forward to that one. Not yet. I think they're going to wait until cinemas are properly open. So I, I should think sometime in the spring. Oh. Well, yeah. Roger, as always, an absolute pleasure talking to you again. Me too. Thank you very much. Oh, I can't. Thanks. I am looking forward to the Duke, and hopefully I'll talk to you again about that one. Great. Let's do that. Thanks, Roger. Bye. Bye-bye. And that was director Roger Michelle talking about Blackbird. And again, tonight and tomorrow, special event, a nationwide cinema premiere with Fathom Events. Uh, just Google fathomevents.com, punch in your zip code, punch in the film name, punch in your zip code. It will tell you the nearest theater to you, 500 theaters around the country, Um 7 p.m. screenings. It's only one screen. 7 p.m. Uh, in Southern California, you got to go to Oceanside. It's at the Regal at Oceanside at 7 p.m. And for those of you back home, my home, uh, Plymouth Meeting Mall has it. Shocker, but yeah, Plymouth Meeting Mall. Uh, you can see it at 7 o'clock and all around Philadelphia. Philadelphia has theaters open. Los Angeles and New York don't. So that is, so see it. If you don't have an in-person theater that you can go sit in near you, the film is opening uh, on demand and in drive-ins and other select theaters this coming Friday. It's a it's a winner. You've got you've got four winners today. You've got I Am Woman out now. See it, see it, see it. Why it took this long for Helen Reddy to have a biopic made? I'll never know. One hour out call tomorrow. Blu-ray, DVD, VOD, digital, and The Dark Divide, fabulous, fabulous film. That is out there digitally, VOD, uh, and I think some theatrical on that one. Also, another fun one, people, Netflix, The Babysitter, Killer Queen. If you love the first one, you're going to love the sequel. If you didn't see the first one... You're going to love this one, and you're going to want to go back and see the original. Uh, and I've got interviews coming up this week uh, that'll be out this week with uh, the cast on that one. And, of course, it's, again, uh, directed by McGee, who did the first one. That is more than all the time we have for today. We will be back next week. We are already booked in through middle October. Next week, we're going to be talking about two fun films. Uh, we've got the Ringmaster coming up next week. And I forget who else. I know we have the Ringmaster next week, and I forget what other film is next week. And then the following week, uh, we're going to finish out September with author and filmmaker Steve Balderson, who's here to talk. He'll be here to talk about his new book. And Janice Rouse is back. She talking about her latest creation, the Shannon O'Brien Chronicles, which are cleaning up awards all over the world. Um, I can't wait for the last week of September when Janessa's is back with us. Uh, but 
until until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 